Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present black and white who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 uh, this is Leslie Giz. This is the Gist of Freedom. You can listen to us on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Tonight we have our very close friend to the show, Dr. Ishmael Griffin, a survivor of COVID. He's going to talk to us along with his friend, Bonnie Harrison, who is a therapist. So with that, I will now allow Ms. Harrison to introduce herself. Well, again, my name is Bonnie Harrison. Um, I am a licensed psychotherapist, and I'm based in Harlem, gladly. Um, I've been working in the field for 35 years or more, well, since 1977. I function as a professor at various universities, I lecture, and I, one of the things I love doing most is training. I do that. I'm also a grief ritual facilitator, and so I go throughout the country um, facilitating grief rituals, primarily focusing, though, on uh, the technology of indigenous spirituality. And um, right now I'm doing some interesting things. Um, I have been for a while handling my practice uh, virtually, so I have online groups. And I also see, uh, well, see, in quotes, um, people that I work with on on the phone. So COVID has opened that uh, arena up like it's never been before, I see, because people are not able to gather and be in offices. So it's opened up, I guess, opportunities for a lot of home-based practices, uh, uh, people who wanted to do home-based businesses to do this work virtually. Um, I work with a diverse population. I became most known in the um, 80s uh, when AIDS was a pandemic and the beginning of that. And my first cases were in 1977 when I was working in substance abuse. As a result of that, um, I was approached by some uh, black uh, at that time, they were called gay men, but we don't use that term that much uh, in the black African-American community. It's more, it's more some gender-loving. Um, but there are people who still identify as gay or lesbian or black, gay and lesbian. But that's the population that approached me because there was no one out here uh, that was working with the population and addressing the issue of AIDS. 
It was not called AIDS then. As a matter of fact, at some point it began to be called SLIM, um, and then it became ARC, and then it became HIV at some point, and then uh, progressed to AIDS. But this, this pandemic reminds me of it. People say it reminds them of it. Um, I ended up being um, chosen to be the uh, chairperson for the mayor's task force on um, mental health, mental health concerns for the LGBT community uh, under uh, Mayor Dinkins, and um, I think it was Koch too during that period of time. And so I've done a lot of things in our community. I said the first, I was the first coordinator for the HIV care network in Harlem. And um, so my work has sort of come full circle, and I'm really so happy that you asked me to be on this show tonight because I'm talking not just about COVID and its impact on the black African-American community um, and mental health, but also the issue of grieving because what's happening now is so many people have not completed the grief process for, for HIV and AIDS and now they're being impacted by COVID-19. So I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. Right. Thank you. And Dr. Ishmael, um, you know, could you just give us a, a brief overview of what, you know, what you experienced in the hospital recently? And I know you didn't, you wanted to keep it private, but, um, you accepted my um, request to come on the show to talk a little bit about it. Okay, Leslie, again, I'm Dr. Ishmael Griffin. I want to say at the outset that I'm honored to be on the show with Bonnie um, I know Bonnie as a colleague, a uh, mentor, and an advisor. And um, I can't say that my history goes back to 1977 and the beginning of the HIV epidemic and advising the mayor to I can't say that my history goes back 30-something years as a black legal health provider in, in New York City. I am just, uh, uh, just kind of awed, and I've always been awed by Bonnie and the work that done. Me, myself, personally, I'm this in a world he gave to us. Uh, probably a couple of weeks back, I was working directly in it's a I did one show when I was on my road to the emergency department. And, um, you know, I interviewed a lot of patients. I did a lot of conversations. Um, I uh, personally took the test one week, it was negative. Um, and I went back to work and I was interviewing patients. Uh, went back to work and one day at the end of a conversation, I started getting some aches. Um, I kind of knew automatically given environment that was in that I was exposed to COVID and suspected COVID because I had a low grade tent. I went home and quarantined myself and thought I would get better to go back to work. Things got a little worse and I ended up having to leave my home in ambulance to a university medical system in my house. It was a strange experience with the doctor having to go through this because I was aware of I got the 
I thought they were about to end the baby, but they did not. Five days in the hospital, uh, and I turned around. Um, I had what is known as a cytokine immune response. Uh, and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you know who. Thank be to God. My fat came back to my house. I was disappeared, and I was discharged home. I convey that I live through it as a victim that survived. So some of my comments may reflect that understanding, that personal understanding. And I'm pretty sure this is a great moment for me to basically lay on the line in this modern paradigm with a wealth of information on black mental health. That you received a phone call uh, while you were in the hospital. Could you share that with the audience? Because this is Sunday, as uplifting as possible for those who may be in the hospital. know someone who's in the hospital so bad. Your story is so inspirational, so you could share that. As the cold, so the time and so is a faithful I got the feeling that the medication is that they can't be more doing it. I think the thing that turned me around is I got a call from my aunt, um, 86 years old, and she prayed for me, and she exhorted me to get up. I was kind of in a state where I was uh, a little tired and exhausted, and couldn't do it really. but I could hear her voice praying. Um, I've heard her voice praying. I know that it was really my aunt's prayer that brought me through this. Um, it, it was really, you know, that connection with uh, Christ that she has had that really connected with me, and I heard her voice, and um, that's what gave me the strength. I mean, I think that's what turned on the cytokine and immune response, and that brought on me just getting back up and fighting for my life, knowing that it that. COVID was not going to take me out. And um, that's just the truth of it. I've had a chance to speak with my aunt, and I told her the significance of her prayer with me. Um, but, you know, thanks be to God, I'm here. Thank you. And with that being said, please do not stop praying. There's a lot of gospel songs out there that we can sing, and they all say the same thing. Don't stop praying. So, uh, Miss Bonnie Harrison, we discussed yesterday several topics. I like to talk about um, ways that, you know, we wanted to make sure we can memorialize our people, the lost, because on television we get daily reports of how many people died, and they just dismiss it as a flattening of the curve. But at the same time, it's a great thing that we do um, have memorials, or we pay tributes every night at 7 o'clock in New York City to doctors, courageous doctors like Dr. Ishmael, with the applause and things of that nature, 
you were discussing the way that we can also take time every day, and I love how you explained high noon, to acknowledge those that didn't survive COVID or to pray for those who we are who are going through COVID. So I'll let you jump right in. Well, what I would like to do is just reference something that um, Ishmael said about the strength that he got from the prayers of his grandmother. And so much of my work involves uh, ancestral inheritance and ancestors uh, because part of my reality involves indigenous spirituality. Um, So I think that the thing that has held the glue that has held our people together, as well as people from other ethnocultural groups, but specifically our people, has been the fact that we have grandmothers and we have aunts and uncles and cousins and and we have nephews and grandfathers who believe in the power of prayer. And being Americans, that is the basis for our survival here. even though there are various interpretations of the Bible, uh, there are various understandings of of, uh, Christianity and various forms of it, um, the central theme um, has to be, at some point, I think, people recognize the power of prayer, if nothing else. And um, what does that person do? How do they grieve when... They're unable to use anything that they've been taught to do. There will be no funeral. There's not going to be a wake. There won't be a repast. There's not going to be any sit shiva. There won't be any washing of the bodies as they do in Islam. No calling of the Adan to bring people together. There won't be any last rites as they do in in, um, the Catholic churches. There won't be any goodbyes the way we are accustomed to having that experience. So what is happening is our people are, in a sense, losing it, are just becoming numb. And what happens when people are not able to grieve appropriately, maladaptive behaviors show up. People start drinking again. People that that had clean time, many years of clean time, are now relapsing. You find the the NA groups and and, and, uh, AA groups are working overtime. Uh, They've gone to social media to help each other hold it together. You're finding people um, acting out of these goals of misbehavior because they don't know anything else to do. So the rage and the pain and the the anger and the shame that people carry because I wasn't able to bury my mother. I feel ashamed because I wasn't able to, I've got to, uh, my relative is in a pine box and we're accustomed to having maybe beautiful coffins if there's such a thing. Um, So all of the things that are familiar to us, we're not able to do. And we haven't been taught how to do anything else. So we displace these emotions sometimes in unhealthy ways. We drink, we use drugs, other forms of drugs, uh, more than we normally would. We eat more than we normally would. We have a need to be nurtured, and we have a need for um, intimacy that gets displaced into sexual behaviors and acting out. Um, 
the rage that we feel that comes from the anger that we feel because we could not do what was familiar, that gets turned into externalized uh, rage. So we are now people are beating up relatives, they are beating up their spouses, and they are beating children and sexually abusing children, poor little kids that were able to escape some of this stuff in the household when they could go to school. They can't do that now. There's no school. There are no daycare centers. People aren't able to go to work. Okay. Um, I just have a quick question. I wanted to uh, jump in there. Um, I included in the post on the show um, a brief blurb about the heart mass grave site. Um, Would you like to so, Leslie, 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 can I can I say something before that? Um, uh, yes. First of all, my aunt is Afro-Caribbean. She's from Jamaica. And I'd like to say that um, I believe that uh, black people in the Caribbean experience the same form of torture. I think that there's a myth in this country that they have not. And so I see that border as very fluid. In fact, blacks from the Caribbean were oftentimes sold into the United States and back and forth. So I want to just say that at the outset. Uh, second, what I want to say is that um, we CDC has uh, put out some a statistic that 30% of the cases of COVID are actually amongst African Americans, and I think that many of the things that Ms. Harrison said are the background. I mean, there were things in the African American community that existed, including lack of access to health care, that made us particularly vulnerable to COVID, and I can tell you right now that. There are cases of people, because I personally get phone calls, who they haven't counted as COVID who died. So um, we have to understand that our community is being particularly impacted and that we need Mm -hmm. to have conversations about what's going on on a personal level. Um, I think what Ms. Harrison is saying about, you know, people having loss. I mean, we experienced in this country during slavery um, people that were just taken away. Um, You didn't know where they went, and the grief and the sense that you never saw that relative again because they were sold off. You mean never knew what would happen to them when they died. And I think that what Ms. Harrison is talking about, genetic memory, we all have a little bit of memory of that in us. And so when we see uh, relatives going to hospitals, we can't really connect with them, and they say they're isolated. And then you hear that they died, and their body is isolated because you know, is you know they you know suspected infections from coronavirus. It affects us in a different way, and in, even in ways, um, basically in the deepest part of our souls that we don't understand. And so, I just want to echo what Ms. Harrison is saying, and um, let's go on. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you um, that that slavery impacted us, you know, uh, diasporically. And I I agree too that the the results of that experience are embedded in all of our in cellular memory for those of us in the Caribbean and in Central and South America, as well as on the continent. I think the difference, and I'm not going to get into the nuances, but there is a difference when you are colonized and when you are experiencing a neo-colonial experience. And when you are enslaved and not colonized, and not, uh, but you have a, a colonized mind because of the domestication you experienced in America, which was different from the way slavery happened in some of these other places, as horrific as it was. But 
Hearts Island, for example, <clears throat> as you're talking about, is a place where b- people were buried, are being buried now. But it has a history that is indigenous to us as a people. And as a matter of fact, there's a monument there now that was um, erected for the purpose of recognizing those individuals that were buried there. Um, but the, the, the African experience of burial was one of absolute respect and, and, and honor um, and celebration. So for us, when our people's bodies are thrown in bags, stacked on each other, on top of each other, like meat in a warehouse, and it just so happens that people are stacked like meat in warehouses in these uh, refrigerated trucks, then at a certain point they are taken, if, there's, if the time is, passes for people to be, the bodies to be claimed, then these individuals are taken to Hearts Island and they're thrown in these holes and dirt is thrown on them basically unceremoniously, and that's that. What that does to the soul of an ins- a person that's the progeny of enslaved Africans is unimaginable. And at the, at the psychic level, it's almost irreparable, that type of damage. So it's, there's just so much to this um, this particular pandemic that is so different from what happened with HIV when people were dying. There was the shunning, there was the distancing, there was all of that. But you didn't have people thrown in mass graves. Uh, people could get bodies and when funeral homes would, would um, bury them when they would uh, handle those bodies the way they were handled differently than what's happening now. People are not even, that. you take people, Christians, for example, most people in, in uh, Western religious belief systems don't believe in cremation. But now, for the most part, most of these bodies are being cremated. That is a horrific experience for people who don't believe in that. So my thing is, then how do we grieve these losses in a way that brings us some resolution? And I'm saying that since we can't do it the way this culture says you do it, then what are we left with? We're left with having uh, to do it from an indigenous perspective, we can't do it if we don't know about the indigenous ways, but those indigenous ways have to do with spirituality, not religion, so to speak. And so what I can talk about and what I talk about in my practice and help people with is creating grief um, um, rituals, creating ancestral altars, creating altars to represent and to honor and uh, are dead. And that is a very simple thing. It's it's something, though, that for some people is difficult to do because they've been taught through their religious belief systems and they have come to believe that to do this is sacrilegious or it's demonic or it's bad. And it's not when you think about the fact that I don't know any black person that at some point doesn't have a conversation with a dead grandmother uh, dead aunt or uh, uncle or sister or brother or great-grandparent. Uh, because in our culture, those grandmothers and uncles and aunts raised a lot of us. So they're like our, our mothers and our fathers. And we have conversations with them all the time.
I say something. Um, black culture is basically a culture where there's a respect of elders and there's a sense of a connection and a sense of um, obedience to elders. So what's going on in terms of vilifying elders is is kind of not really the way we kind of deal with things. The idea of having an elderly grandparent, aunt, uncle in a nursing home that's stuck in it that you cannot connect with or parent is horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. And I think one of the things that, that is unique about this discussion is that most times there is no vehicle to talk about it. You know, there is no vehicle for us to, and we, and a lot of times black people aren't really aware of some of the cultural things that they know on a on a spiritual and innate level, but they can't really express. So I thank Miss Harrison for being on the show because uh, she is educating us to these things that we kind of instinctively know, but we um, we we kind of I, I don't think that there's a communal discussion about this kind of uh, understanding of grief in the black community. Um, I think that we've kind of been short on understanding how we deal with grief. I've been in the emergency position for 20 years, and I, um, you know, I work in a setting in which is trauma-critical patients, and I've seen black people deal with death. And I can tell you that most times there are outbursts. Um, there are outbursts. Um, there's a, a lot of emotion around it. It's just what I see. Um, and then I see one person in the family who's the organizer who basically has to deal with the process of the initial outburst. I've seen the bodies lying in the emergency room. I've seen people walk in, and I understand that. And I, and I can tell you that a lot of times that when we walk in and we see that body in the emergency room, that there's a complete disconnect. Like we're seeing the body, but we're not really understanding that it's there, and we're grieving deeply, and we're thinking, you know what I mean? And they're outbursts. And then there's that one person in the family that organizes so that the family can leave. I mean, even just leave. You know, it's hard for them to kind of see the body lying there. We're talking about taking it down to the morgue and leaving. And, I, and, I, and what I usually have to do is I usually have to identify that person in the family who's going to organize. And it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this because I've seen grief directly. Um, and, um, you know, you know, some of the things that I've seen, I, I can't even talk about, um, but I, what, what I want to do is I want to let the show go on and I want to let Ms. Harrison speak because I think what she has to say is very significant. Well, I just want to just stop a second and just tell you that I applaud you. You are not the usual common doctor. The average doctor is not, is trained to be very stoic and to disconnect from their feelings so that they can get the job done. And that's kind of like the male European Western way of doing things. Um, but I find that um, someone like you and there are other brothers like you too and sisters who, because of your, your um, black experience, which is very connected to your culture through uh, your grandparents and your elders, you're able to feel um, these losses in, in, a, in a way that um, translates into your thinking about your own family 
your own family system and finding ways to try to buttress some of the pain that family members and friends experience. I know you do that. You do wellness calls and checks. Yeah, yeah, when you yeah, were born so, ill, you were doing wellness calls. Yeah, so, so, so what in I'm reality, is that we can say is this, is that I'm seeing in the media, I was a lot of people calling health providers heroes. And I want to say at the outset that, um, honestly, I am no hero. Um, you know, I came into this to take care of people. I relate to all people, and I try to do the best job I possibly can. Um, I wouldn't be so vain to have gone into medicine to be a hero. Um, I am a doctor. I have the same concerns because I've been personally affected by COVID. I have the same fears of people. Um, when I go into the hospital, I can honestly say that I relate mostly because of just a cultural thing to uh, African-American and Hispanic communities, because uh, Hispanic communities, particularly those from the Caribbean, because I see a commonality, and a lot of times I see what they're going through, and I relate to them on a personal level. So and whatever way I can, I bring that personal experience. Like when I'm talking to families that are grieving, I have to bring a sensitivity. One of the things I say when I'm talking to families, and particularly if they have a relative that is very sick, is that my white jacket doesn't touch the ground that my job is to do the very best for them. But one of the things as a man that's raised spiritually is that I'm not trying to pretend to be God. So I don't call nothing. They ask me, I say, listen, we're working on getting them better. And they often ask. And then I say to them, I say, you're in here, your loved one is inside, you're struggling. I said, the reality is you're going to have to think the most positive thing. And so they look at me and they say, doctor, you're right. So I said, just stay there. Um, so... That's, you know, I'll let Ms. Harrison take the rest of it. But I wanted to say those things because people have sometimes misunderstood how, you know, health providers may look at it. Um, if the health provider is standing above you thinking that they're greater, then they think they're heroes. But if they're down there with you and they relate to you, then it's not about heroes. It's about relating to you and wanting and, and praying for the best health for you and your family. So I think, we, I think that's a, that's the one thing I need to say, and then I'll let I'll let Bonnie kind of carry on because she's well, well you know, because I, I love you. Hmm? One quick question before we um, pass on to Ms. Harrison: uh, the insurance companies, which are greedy, um, they're fi- they're they're finding that um, a lot of the patients are becoming um, they're they're responding to religious uh, rituals, uh, the presence of their their um, worship leaders, and they're finding that this is helping the patients, therefore save the money. Are you finding this to be a trend that they are now embracing um, the involvement of of the religious um, leaders to come into the hospital before surgery? Because I, I read that before surgery they're allowing people to come in and pray because they find out the people um, recover much quicker, and they have better results with survival rates. When they so, have so let me answer that. that let me answer mm-hmm. that. I have a good friend. She may have been on the line. Her name is Dr. Kim Best, and she actually mm-hmm. has a program of training for for clergy um, that go into the hospitals. My 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 uh, kind of uh, protocol with clergy is that I understand their importance, and um, I give them full reign. Um, I let them come in and pray with their people because I understand the importance of that in getting better. Now, I don't, 
I don't really know if the insurance companies, what they know, but I know what I do because I've got to be about people getting better. Um, so if Dr. Kim Best is on the line, um, uh, I think that she has a lot to share about her program that she has had for many years, a wonderful woman who is a leader in the community, um, uh, who is a is a is an esteemed colleague of mine and a friend. Um, I, I'm going to share with you that um, there are two women that I call almost every day in the midst of this epidemic, and that's Ms. Bonnie Harrison and Ms. Kim Best, and Dr. Kim Best. Um, and so with that, I'll, I'll let Bonnie carry on. And I think this is a perfect well, question for you, Harrison. Well, well, I remember the days, oh, this I feel so old when I have this conversation. I remember back in the 80s when um, uh, the hospital over in the Bronx incorporated indigenous um, spiritual leaders into the wellness program um, because they discovered they had a, a heavily Hispanic population in the Bronx, and, and this is um, like the South Bronx. Lincoln Hospital was where it was. And um, they discovered that when the Babalaos and the um, priests and priestesses would come to visit and do what they did, there was a complete change in the attitude and the the wellness rate of the individuals that they ministered to. So it was no longer just the Christian minister that could come or the rabbi that would come. Now they were allowing indigenous um, leaders to come into the hospitals. And so that made a difference. One of the things that I um, wanted to do and I'm in the process of doing is creating a national um, process that not only black African Americans and Caribbeans and diasporan people can relate to, but people of all ethnocultural groups, because believe me, in spite of the fact that the person that we have in that house in Washington has stirred up the, under, the ugliest underbelly of racism um, that we've seen in a long time, um, and it allows certain people in the population to act out. It's just like in group process, we have a we have something called the the um, the uh, what am I? I'm, my mind is racing now. The scapegoat, and the scapegoat is the person in the group that acts out, says crazy things, does crazy things, and the moment the therapist. Um, um, tries to redirect that behavior, the group will attack the therapist. You know why? Because the scapegoat is articulating the thoughts and feelings of the group that is unable to do that for themselves. So that's what is happening with our president, who is functioning as the scapegoat in the group, and the population that he aligned, that aligns themselves with him, who are uh, don't recognize yet how this is going to affect them. They really don't because they get more welfare than anybody else. They get more more um, Medicaid than anybody else, more food stamps than anybody else. So what's going to happen is they're not going to be able to have those benefits. They're not going to be able to work. Um, they haven't been able to, and they're going to be in serious trouble. But the point of the matter is how 
can we, as um, professionals, as caregivers, as caring people, come together and co-create in community a safe, respectful way for us to mourn our losses, mourn our dead. And what I created through the organization that I represent, um, which is called CITIS, S-I-T-I-S, it stands for the Sankofa Institute for Training and Integrative Services, Inc. It's a nonprofit organization here in Harlem. And what I created was something called ISONU, I-S-O-N-U. ISONU is a Yoruba word. It comes out of Ifa, and it means loss, you know, great loss. And I created a, an entire um, day whereby we go through a process of mourning, and celebrating the life of uh, these individuals. And it's not just people that we've lost. There are people we have here in this country who are from the Caribbean, Central South America, who are from the continent of Africa, who cannot go home because if they do, they can't get back and they need to stay here to help their families. There are people who have lost I have friends who lost members of their family in the mudslides in, the, in, in Haiti, and um, they, 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 they're here because their families need them here, and they're becoming doctors and they're becoming professionals to be able to help their own people. But that loss is tremendous for them. Um, we have people that have lost jobs, lost relationships, lost limbs, lost every, so many things, and these losses need to be honored. So Isonu is a um, an event, a community event that I've created, and I would like to, and we had planned to have this, um, Sankofa Cetus had planned to have this in the summer, in July. But now that COVID has hit us, what I think we need is to have at least a national day of mourning, and it needs to be structured in such a way that all religious groups and all faith groups, all indigenous groups can participate. And I had planned for next month to have a Zoom uh, meeting, and I'm having people that represent these different um, indigenous cultures come on and co-host with me to talk about ways that people grieve death and dying in their culture. Um, so what I would hope, we could happen if this if this program is far reaching enough and people like an Oprah Winfrey or people like um a um um what's her name? Henson. Taraji Henson, who is very much involved, she says, in mental health, particularly with black males. She's the one that I think she and I need to talk because I she 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 created this foundation because she didn't see where there were any any black therapists that could work with with um, black youth and children, and she wanted some of her. Son. But there there are those of us out here. I'm here, and she's on the west coast, and I'm on the east coast. So she doesn't know about me. But what I would love to see is people like her and the Oprah Winfrey's and the the um, Tyler Perry's get involved in this conversation that we're having and support us in having a national day of mourning and recognition and celebration to um, address the issue of grief and loss around COVID. Because okay. I think there are people okay, in our audience who... We, we well, what I would, I'm going to do that is... 
Okay. I'm going so to. That's what that's people can, first of all, do is they can go to our website. It's CITIS, S-I-T-I-S, Inc., org. S-I-T-I-S, Inc., dot org. And you can leave um, messages and comments on the um, website, on the page. And there um, is also a number that people can call if they'd like. What, we, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up an independent number so that people can call that number because we're getting a lot of, of requests for participation. And what, I would, what I'm going to do is post on the website a number that people can call and they can leave information, they can ask questions, and they'll get responses. Because I would like to see us have this as a collective community effort. I don't want Bonnie Harrison and her organization, CETUS, and Dr. Griffin and you to be the sole originators of this healing process. It has to be a community process because our losses are a community loss. So um, if any of you out there in the listening community know anyone out there who has the ability to um, support this kind of work that we are doing, support such an event as an ISONU, uh, community gathering, who have um, television time, who have money, who has money that can help us do this, then please go to CETUS's uh, site, list that information, leave your contact information, and we will get back to you. But in the meantime, I can give you this phone number that you can call. It's 646 646- 3017. Again, 646-651-3017. And I will get back to you as soon as I can. Um, but I think that we need to get together and be of, have unity of purpose, unity of identity, and we can do this. It's, we shouldn't even think about just a day. I think that we have losses all the time, every day. And I'm, I would right. like to show people how you can honor those losses on a daily basis. And we can decide, because it's universal, usually high noon is looked at as a spiritual time. So my vision is that at high noon, on the day that we choose, we're going to have this Isonu. And it's going to be national. And it could be international, because the, the losses are international. Um, I know here where I live in Esplanade Gardens, we had on Easter, we had a day of mourning and recognition, and it was so simple. We had um, some a DJ to play gospel music downstairs. Uh, it was not representative of all of the, uh, the cultures and all of the belief systems of people that live here, but the majority of the people that live in Esplanade are Christian. So there was, a, there was music, and um, we did something as simple as just wave white cloths. I had a pillowcase, and, I, and, and it flew out <laughs> off the terrace, and I got a face towel. But I was waving, we waved these flags in submission to a higher power. We waved these flags uh, in, in, in honor of our dead, 
And that was so simple. That's something simple to do. So I'd love to teach us how to do other simple things at home and every day, Mm -hmm. and that way we will be able to go through this grieving process in a healthy way. People are not going to get stuck in these emotions and act them out in unhealthy ways. Stop it. 
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.